from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Welcome to A Baha'i Perspective. I recorded an interview with Lance Mead on April 24, 2014. Lance is a geologist who had the opportunity to travel around the world for his work. We don't talk so much about the Baha'i faith in this interview, but I do learn a lot about quarrying and the use of our rock resources, and an interesting tidbit about Palestinian quarrying. I started the interview by asking Lance where he grew up. And what was it like growing up there? Where I grew up was Connecticut, Greenwich, Connecticut, uh, way back before the Connecticut Turnpike and when it was still a small New England town on Long Island Sound. And on the Facebook, uh, there's a whole bunch of folks that grew up there as well, and they're posting remembrances and photos and all sorts of things that really got my brain going back to those good days. And growing up there, we moved up to Connecticut from Astoria, Long Island, during the war, World War II. My dad got a job up in Bridgeport, Connecticut. My mother had grown up in Coscob, which is part of Greenwich, so it was an obvious place for us to move to. And it was at that point in time I subsequently found out that our particular Meade family was some of the original settlers in that town in the 1640s. So Growing up there, I was always feeling part of the location, locality, and at the same time not really realizing the in-depth family history there. It still was a really grounded, well-located space for a young person like myself. We really lived on Long Island Sound, and as pretty young, 12, 13 years old, maybe younger, all us guys kind of grew up around boats so that we were there on the sound in the summertime, big time, with all sorts of rowboats and canoes and sailboats and good stuff like that. So water was a big part of your life. Absolutely. And Boy Scouts was a big part. That's another story. But we were, in those days, independent kids. We had a lot of flexibility and freedom. We would go on these mega camping trip, winter camping up in the backcountry in the wintertime where we didn't get much snow down there, but we still learned how to be on our own with tents and cold weather. And it gave us a sense of independence. And it was between that and our bikes to get around with a lack of traffic in those days. It was just a fantastic time. And what was spiritual life like growing up? My parents were not church-going people. Uh, my father had been a, a well-embedded Catholic. His mother had hoped he'd become a priest. And then he met my mother. So that, that priesthood thing disappeared, and I, I appeared. <laughs> <laughs> so the spiritual aspect is a, another issue, I guess, where we weren't really grounded in a church per se which subsequently having become engaged with the Baha'i faith and doing some study programs with some 
local folks here in Vermont, where I live now, uh, who grew up in a church environment, I realize that it really uh, sometimes is an impediment to uh, people's spirituality or sense of spirit when you are confined to a specific uh, religious, dogmatic, church-going, regardless of what the church is. So uh, I was kind of like an open-ended kid. Did you think about spiritual things growing up at all? Not much, no. I was more concerned about getting together with the guys and doing good stuff. Things happened during when my dad was in the service in Europe in World War II. Uh, my mother's family uh, was a mix. Uh, her dad was from a strong German family. Her mother was a, a girl from a Jewish family. At that point in time, my dad was uh, really exposed to the duplicity of uh, religions relative to belief systems and what good Christians are supposed to do when you're in a war situation, all that goes puts on it gets put on the side. Uh, so he came back from the war pretty much open-minded, but looking at least keeping an open mind to something better than what he grew up with, and that probably was the impetus for uh, my family, my folks uh, searching. And there was a point in time when my mother was bedridden and she opened up the local newspaper, the local Baha'i group in Greenwich, uh, which subsequently be, were absolutely fantastic people. They would put place ads, space ads in the no local newspaper with Baha'i quotes. And that caught the attention of my mother. She shared it with my father. Uh, they made a few phone calls and one block away from us was one of the Baha'i families who was uh, Robert McLaughlin who and Catherine McLaughlin really early Baha'is Robert was an architect and uh, Catherine they brought us in and they had Sunday programs for children and adults and it was uh, at that point Dr. David Rue was my so-called Sunday school instructor and subsequently, Dr. Rue uh, was, became a member of the Universal House of Justice out in Haifa. And uh, he and my parents kept in contact. And Dr. Rue and myself and his wonderful wife, Margaret, we kept in contact over the years. Right. So it was, that, it was a wonderful exposure to the heart and, and basics of the Baha'i uh, scripture. So just for the... Uh, benefit of the folks listening, the Universal House of Justice is our highest authoritative body that's elected every five years, and the body uh, represents the worldwide Baha'i community and is located in Haifa, Israel. So how old were you when your parents first became exposed to the Baha'i faith? Well, before you get, uh, get into that, Warren, I just want to interject that the great round circle of life comes around. And one of our granddaughters, we have grand, 10 grandchildren at this point, one of our granddaughters is, is serving for a year of service at the Universal House of Justice in Haifa. And just this past couple of days, two of our daughters, the mother of that little girl, she's not so little, but the mother, uh, Tori Ann, a Baha'i from Burlington, Vermont, went to Haifa to visit her daughter, and her aunt, our number three daughter, Allison, uh, from Pennsylvania with her daughter, went to Haifa. The two sisters got together in that absolutely marvelous place at a marvel, just before Rizwan, 
we're all operating on a very high plane of happiness and, and gratitude. Uh, they've all returned. The youngest one is over there still at the Universal House of Justice. But, yeah, it's just an amazing 50-plus years of experience, uh, Warren. Right. So before you uh, continue your story, uh, you mentioned Rizwan, which is a holy time for the Baha'is in April, in which we commemorate the declaration of Baha'u'llah as the messenger of God for this day to the world. And so it's a very spiritual time for Baha'is. Absolutely. Yeah. Can you continue your story about how old you were when your parents first heard about the Baha'i faith? Yeah. What happens at this stage of my life also, Warren, is that my uh, total de- recall on all the details kind of gets fuzzy. Sure. But I, I was probably about 12 years old, 13 it was such a natural thing. I'd always been involved with Native American stuff and our own family with their Native American connections. The horror of uh, what happened to Native people uh, had always plagued and bothered me. And when my parents found the Baha'i Scripture and I took part in the Sunday programs and so on, it was just such an obvious connection with the universality of mankind and the issues of what is justice and injustice in the world uh, and how it really is the time for revitalization of mankind. And getting back to the Haifa deal, though, what really is astounding is that the two, our two daughters with their, their daughters were over at the Sea of Galilee and at that point where there's just a, such a marvelous place, I've been there myself, and the overwhelming sense of Christ's uh, experience and the, uh, the, year, the three years that he spent there, there's, there's no commercialization whatsoever. It's just like your Christ is around the corner from where you are. At the same time, traveling back over to Haifa, where at Akka and, and the prison city of Akka, the girls all spent wonderful time, and that northern Israel is not the tension that you have further south in Israel. So they were able to see the Jewish uh, communities, the Christians, the Muslims, Baha'is, all interacting in a very positive way. Having transferred over the hills from the Galilee to Akka was a spiritual journey for all four of them, and we haven't talked to them face to face, but we're all anxious to really sit down and hear their stories for sure that's nice that's nice so for the benefit of those listening Akka is the prison city where Baha'u'llah his last imprisonment before his final release and that happened to be in the Ottoman Empire at the time uh, but today it's part of Israel absolutely Uh, so what was it like being a Baha'i growing up in your teens well it was an amazing thing because I was the only one (laughs) <laughs> and the recent youth conferences that they've had held around, like in Boston, you know, there were, I don't know, thousand plus kids there, all Baha'is, some non-Baha'is, but a lot of kids. When I was a youth in Connecticut, uh, I was asked to serve on the New England Youth Committee, and there was less than half a dozen Baha'i youth in all of New England. This wow. is 1950s. It's just absolutely Amazing for me to reflect back at that point in time and where we are today with the totally uh, exuberant, uh, vivacious 
young people that are involved with the Baha'i faith. What did you do after high school, Lance? Well, before I got out of high school, uh, my parents, we lived in Connecticut, but at that point in time, there was a, a, a process in the Baha'i faith where they needed more Baha'i communities and we what were called Homefront Pioneers for Burlington, Vermont. We moved up to Burlington, Vermont in 1955. And at that point in time, I was just graduating, just a senior in high school. So being there, I was able to enroll in the at University of Vermont uh, after high school. And it's where I, at high school, I met my uh, my current wife. My life just opened up, worn in a way that I couldn't have planned better from the University of Vermont experience, Vermont, uh, the living here in Vermont, working here, traveling the world as a geologist with my connection with Baha'i communities. I've been, uh, my most recent excursion was in Mongolia, if you can believe that, uh, Western Mongolia, Outer Mongolia. And being a Baha'i, being able to step into a culture where there's a lot of shamanism in Western Mongolia, and being able to converse very comfortably with people, understanding the shamanism experiences that they've gone through. At the same time, the, the total vital Baha'i community in Mongolia with the people that are just open up to the concepts that uh, Baha'u'llah has brought to us. What concepts in particular? Well, the fact is that we all are part of the same human race. We've basically gone through a couple of umpteen thousand years where we've been ruled by kings and rulers and all sorts of folks. And the basic idea within the Baha'i concept now, Baha'u'llah has brought the ability of each one of us individually to take responsibility for our own spiritual lives. And in that process, it's just like when you're raising children, you try to raise them to the point where they're mature enough to step out in the world on their own. Uh, the human race, all of us, Mongolians, Africans, no matter what, are at a point in time. And you, we see it with the conflicts going on right now around the world where the, uh, the Arab Spring, people are, are looking to be able to establish themselves in their own context. And in that part is particularly a spiritual context for us Baha'i people. And Mongolians and everybody are open that, yeah, you know, this is, I'm certainly capable of connecting with and, and doing all sorts of stuff that uh, before we had to go to a priest or, uh, you know, somebody else to uh, manipulate us through the spiritual maze. That's my story. <laughs> and you're sticking to it. I'm sticking to it. <laughs> so, uh, Lance, what prompted you to study geology in college? Well, I was not a good student, Warren, actually, and I wouldn't really want my grandchildren to hear this, but uh, <laughs> luckily, the, our daughters have married outside of our genetic pool from our family, so that we've got some grandkids that are academically inclined. I was not. The issue, I always wanted to be outdoors. Moving to Vermont from Connecticut was, oh my God, it was fantastic. What was I going to do with my life? And at that point in time, as a... Uh, a freshman in college, this lady that I subsequently married, it was obvious that I was going to become a married person at some point, so I needed to finance a family, at the same time acknowledging my need to be outdoors. 
and then the far i was thinking of forestry that was always one of the family uh businesses but <clears throat> in order to study forestry you've got to memorize all sorts of trees recognize the uh tree just by the bark type of thing by the leaves uh, there was a whole lot of stuff geology on the other hand uh, really was i don't want to call it simpler but it was a open agenda as to how you could apply that science it was natural for me so lance how did you end up applying it in your work well and that's another story warren but luckily here in vermont when i graduated there was no work for geologists it goes cyclically up and down at that point in time I've always had an inkling as I enjoyed children and kids particularly and so I thought of teaching. So the geology thing wasn't working out as employment. At that point we had our first daughter was less than a year old. So I hired on as a school teacher here in Vermont. But again, keeping connected to the university and after three years teaching, which was a phenomenal great positive for me personally, there was an opening at the Vermont Marble Company here in Vermont, which I had really very little experience with. The fact is, at that stage before Sputnik, or about Sputnik time, they were suffering for lack of science teachers here in these rural areas. So I was able to get an emergency teaching certificate. And in the small school, I had responsibility for all the sciences, chemistry, physics, earth science, and a eighth grade general science. The principal who, he was the biology teacher. It was really at the stage when there was a whole new curriculum uh, program that were being instituted for chemistry and physics in particular, chem study, and then the physics uh, program, uh, re-looking re at how these courses have been taught. So I was able to, I was in on the ground floor of a lot of that, which really helped me in the sense that I had no real experience in teaching standard, typical, old-style physics although I'd had physics, the new application kind of opened up a lot of doors. And I was able, I was accepted at a uh, National Science Foundation program at Worcester Polytech down in Massachusetts for a summer program to get my brain up to speed to what's going on in the real world. But uh, yeah, connecting with a small town in Vermont, with the people, with the students, and particularly with earth science, I developed a curriculum there. When you're studying sand dunes, in an earth science program with kids who lived in this one valley, never traveling 20 miles in either direction. There's no sand dunes, but we sure had snowdrifts. So I took the program of snowdrifts, uh, sand dunes, and applied it to snowdrift studies, and then were able to utilize the physics students to for part particle studies, movement, uh, wind ablation, and the forces that work on the earth. And it was more exciting for me than the kids, probably. Yeah, so how old were the kids that you were teaching? Uh, these were eighth graders, which were really a problem for me because they were at the beginning of eighth grade, just beginning to uh, self-identify and want to be class clowns rather than want to perform for the teacher. And so, I don't know, whatever age they are at eighth grade, and we had the seniors in the chemistry program, and there were small classes, so... At one point in time, I had four girls in my chemistry program. Okay. So uh, what did you do in the marble company? Well, it, it was amazing stuff, Warren. It, it, that's a chapter in itself. I came in when the industry was going through some changes 
I really worked with some of the old timers and learned how they did it and why they did it as far as quarrying and what they did with the stone after they quarried it. Uh, we were involved with supplying uh, mega buildings, large building projects uh, with veneer. Uh, one of the first ones was the Albany Mall project over here in Albany, New York, where they adapted thin veneer material to exterior cladding of buildings. Subsequently, granite is being used now in the same way. That opened up a whole arena for me after working at the Marble Company for about 15 years. The company was sold, but I became a, a consultant to architects worldwide for a dimension stone uh, usage on buildings and application of stone material, which is what gave me all the ability to travel to Turkey and all sorts of great spots. So you were with the company for 15 years? About 15 years. Yeah, we were bought out. The uh, dimension stone business, the Italians uh, in Italy were government subsidized. They did a lot of research. They developed a lot of good machinery. Our machinery and, and domestically here, we were pretty well out of date with how we supplied the stone. And uh, a company from Switzerland bought the Vermont Marble Company predominantly for the marble, white marble reserves of stone. What they do or did with it, what they do with it, they grind it up in, uh, they don't need solid marble blocks, but they grind up the white marble and it goes as in what they were developing as a paper filler in place of kale and clay. And we had a phenomenal deposit. So they bought up the Vermont Marble Company and I worked for them for about four years. Then there was a reorganizational thing and that's when I got into consulting. So tell me about your consulting work. Again, it was really a vehicle that allowed me to get to lots of wonderful places. The first place was Alaska. Uh, there was old quarries in Alaska that I looked at relative to uh, utilization, reopening them up uh, for, in the Tokeen area. There was a lot of Tokeen marble brought down to San Francisco and used in California at the turn of the century. It was pretty remote and expensive. Uh, I was contacted at one point by a group, uh, a family uh, in New York who supported a, a kibbutz in Israel. Israeli stone around the central part of Israel is just a beautiful limestone. They were looking at exporting and that venture uh, to, to Israel coincided with my oldest daughter who just returned from Israel, but uh, she had been in the Peace Corps. So we were able to meet up in Israel together way back in, what, 1980-something. And it gave us, with working with the Israelis, they took us all over Israel looking at quarry stones. And subsequently, it's a big issue relative to the control of the natural resource there because it's all on the Palestinian side of the borders. That's the kind of thing, and being there, I was able to enjoy being close to Baha'is, uh, being with the Israelis and the kibbutz and my daughter, um, and then being with some of the Arab people there with the who owned the quarries. It was just a spectacular thing. So really, my work business, I have always had a difficult time segregating work from pleasure. You're saying that the quarries are owned by the Palestinians? Most of the quarries are owned by the Palestinians. 
and are on the so-called wrong side of the wall. But the uh, Palestinians themselves, some of the folks I've met, absolutely astounding people. Their outlet is through Jordan. The Jordanians have a, a good natural stone supply themselves, and they market it through Jordan for the most part. It turned out that that was a problem that my Israeli friends would have, is really being able to be a conduit for the so-called Palestinian stone. Are you still consulting today? Well, that's a good question, because um, I had started my own company called Geomapping Associates. I subsequently uh, had sold that company out to one of the employees, and he maintains the business, but slightly different. They use me as a senior consultant on specialty products, projects, and one of our clients is a company, an underground mining company. My experience quarrying stone here way back when is in the underground mining. So that's really my so-called experience forte in quarrying. So I'm under contract with this group in Georgia that are operating a marble quarry underground. And what they do is they take the marble and, and utilize it like the new owners here in Vermont. They grind it up for paint plastic as a filler, uh, an inert uh, filler that extends resins in a plastic composition type of thing. Uh, it needs to meet certain specifications mineralogically. Uh, and then working underground, they need to develop their mind so it's in a good, safe environment. They're able to extract the stone economically enough to sell it. So is marble plentiful around the world? It's plentiful around the world, but the specifics that are used in either dimension stone or for ground products are very definitive. And so that out of all the marble around the world, is a very small percentage that can be economically extracted and utilized. It sounds like they use it for filler and things like that. Is it? Are there other possibilities other than marble? If the if this particular marble is scarce for what for the usage? Oh yeah, I I think I know what you're saying. Every natural mineral material, kaolin, clay, marble, limestone, gypsum, potash. As long as you can mine it and process it into a usable product and be able to make a dollar at it, it's usable. But there's a lot of other materials that can be supplanted in some of these formulations that would be cheaper. So-called, I'll say, fly ash from some of the steel mills. There's a whole lot of waste material. Well, again, gypsum is a good example. In some of the stacks for power plants that utilize coal, they've got what they call scrubber systems, and the scrubber is a process where it takes the coal dust and scrubs out material and puts it into a form of a calcium sulfate, uh, which is really a gypsum. So now what's happening, they're taking some of the dust from these power plant stacks, and they're utilizing it for gypsum wallboard, and that supplants the natural gypsum that you'd quarry from underground quarries and at a high, high cost. So there's always the changing formulations for utilization of stuff. Now, you said your work to took you to Mongolia. Can you tell me about why you were there and what your experiences were in Mongolia? At this stage of my life, I, I don't want to say well-known, but there's only a few of us that have had experience with Dimension Stone. 
and at the same time with ground products from limestone and marble. I was contacted by a group of Australians who were working under contract with a group of Mongolians who uh, were developing an iron mine in western Mongolia. Con the Australians contacted me through a mutual friend in Canada. The mutual friend said, hey, I know somebody that knows Dimension Stone. So they loaded me up on a plane and sent me to Mongolia. Where we were is totally rural. I mean, incredible. It was like a lifetime experience of getting there, at the same time being there, and at the same time leaving there through uh, Beijing. I'd been to China way back, way back when, before it really was opened up to commercialization. So I'm familiar with the old Beijing. Uh, and then having been at probably a 20-year hiatus, being coming through the new Beijing, seeing exactly what's happening, has happened to China relative to uh, industrialization and modernization, if you want to call it that. But getting up to Mongolia it was like stepping back to Genghis Khan time. I mean, folks still ride horses and camels. I spent some time in a what we would call a yurt, but my Mongolian friends get really upset because that's a Russian word for what they call ger, G-E-R. They just totally uh, natural world peoples. They're like our uh, Western native peoples that lived in teepees and migrated with their herds or the flocks or chased the buffalo. Uh, these Mongolians are like just, I call them pure people. That reminds me, Lance, you mentioned that there's Native American influence in your family. Right. Can you, can you describe that for me? It gets back into the question of how we became involved with the Baha'i faith, Warren. There's so many things that have happened to me in my current life, where I am right now in this physical world, that seem to be carryovers from a genetic experience of family people in the past. And one of them is that in our Mead family, my particular group of Mead family people, we always intermingle very happily with other peoples. And we intermingle very well way back in the early 1700s with some of the native people down in the lower Hudson Valley. It seems as though that there was, I'll say, intermarriage, although marriage wasn't always a precursor to having children. We've gone through a DNA program, and my genetics are definitely mead, 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 all the way back <laughs> in time. But in that process, some of these mead men cohabitated with native women so that the Y chromosomal thing doesn't show up necessarily. But there is a, a, a connection that a lot of my Mead cousins and myself have with native people. One of the issues I think that I've always more recently come to realize is that there's a saying that we inherit the, uh, the sons inherit the sins of the fathers. I'm more inclined to believe that the children inherit the good things of the parents and the ancestors. And way back when, there must have been some good things. James Fenimore Cooper's Last of the Mohegan story is very much a parallel to some of my Mead family people. And there was a lot of intermingling between native folks and, and so-called uh, European folks that moved up country up here. There was a lot of good stuff going on, even though there was a lot of horror stuff. And the horror stuff is what we read about. But all that good stuff, people taking in children whose parents were had gotten diseased and died. And uh, in my case, I'm pretty sure that there's a great-grandmother 
that was brought in to a Mead family. That was my great grandfather's uh, Mead family, and this girl was a Mohawk from a Mohawk uh, family, and for whatever reason, uh, she was placed with the Meads, and very happily, she and my great grandfather started raising a family, and from that family, uh, I'm here. So that's the connection. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, do you have any association with? the Native American community today? Well, remotely, I guess. The most closest association is our dear oldest daughter, who is the one I met in Israel from her return from Peace Corps, being in Africa. We traveled back here together. She subsequently married a wonderful fellow from Cusco, Peru. His name Louis Therese. Louis and his brothers became Earl of Baha'is in Cusco, from a early a Baha'i family that moved to Cusco. Lewis and Torianne have raised three wonderful daughters. The oldest, Mariella, now is works in Washington, D.C. They're uh, the three girls. We're grandparents in Vermont, and they've got grandparents in Cusco. So they've been able to go back and forth in a real world of, of being in Cusco, Machu Picchu, and being much involved with the Peruvian uh, Native American community down there. I've got, I'll say, a number of friends, folks with a lot stronger genetic tie to Native Americans than mine, that we all understand each other in a in a way that's non-explainable to others. It's just an ongoing sequence ever since my parents became Baha'is. When I was 15, I became a Baha'i. Our moving to Burlington, Vermont, marrying my wife, getting in work that brings me around the world, intermingling with people. Uh, the early Baha'i community in Taiwan way back when was another experience. So there's such an inner interaction, Warren, if you can lead a life. I've been lucky to lead a life that I've been open to opportunities. And it's really through Baha'u'llah's teaching, through the basics of what Baha'i uh, believes and how we try to live our life, and I try to emulate that as close as I can, and I certainly don't do a good job in many cases, but it's certainly benefited myself and my family for all the uh, wonderful experiences we've been able to have. I'd encourage anybody out there who's non-Baha'i, doesn't know Baha'i, to dial up, Google up, and uh, quickly find out what gets me so excited after 50-plus years. <laughs> Well, Lance, thank you so much for telling your story. Great, Warren. What I've got here on Facebook is the Baha'is of the Green Mountains, and I try to make it personal so that we're just not passing through. There's so much pass-ons in Facebook and so on. Yeah. That uh, One of our Baha'i people, like our, our daughters over in Israel, uh, I put that on. You've interviewed another fellow here, and I think I put that interview on Facebook. So I would like to be able to share it on our Facebook page. Absolutely. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Lance Mead, a Baha'i and professional geologist. You can find this interview and other interviews at www.abahaiperspective.com. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes by searching for A Baha'i Perspective. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
of stars placed in the skies by one Millions of men lift up their eyes to So many children calling to him by many a different name. One father loving each the same.
Many the paths winding their way to one God. Walk with me, brother. There were no strangers after his work was done. Enemies gonna try to come and kill me Cause I'm his enemy There's one tribe, y'all One tribe, y'all One tribe, y'all We are one people Let's catch amnesia Forget about all that evil Forget about all that evil That evil that they feed you Let's catch amnesia Forget about all that evil That evil that they feed you Remember that we one people We are one people One people, one people, one people One tribe, one tribe, one tribe, one kind, one planet, one race, one love, one people, one too many things that's causing one to forget about the main cause, connect and uniting, but the evil is seeding and alive in us, so our weapons are colliding, and our peace is sinking like Poseidon, but we know that the one, the evil one's threatened by the sum, so we come and try to separate the sum, 
but he dumb. He didn't know he had a will to overcome. Rejuvenate by the beating of the drum. Come together by the cycle of the hum. In freedom, when all become one, forever. One tribe, y'all. One tribe, y'all. One tribe, y'all. We are one people. Let's catch amnesia. Forget about all that evil. Forget about all that evil. That evil that they feed you. Let's catch amnesia. Forget about all that evil. That evil that they feed you. Remember that we one people. We are one people. One 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 people. One 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 people. One 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 people. One love, one blood, one people. One heart, one beat, we equal. Connected like the internet, united, that's how we do. Let's break walls so we see through. Let love and peace lead you. We could overcome the complication, cause we need to. Help each other, make these changes. Brother, sister, rearrange this way of thinking. The we can change this bad condition. Break, use your mind and not your greed. Let's connect and then proceed. This is something I believe. We are one, we're all just people. One tribe, y'all. One tribe, y'all. One tribe, y'all. We all one people. Let's catch amnesia. Forget about all that evil. Forget about all that evil. That evil that they feed you. <laughs> Let's catch amnesia. Let's catch amnesia. Forget about all that evil. That evil that they feed you. <laughs> one tribe, y'all. We, 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 one tribe, y'all. One, one, one people. One, one, one people.
start words. That's how I start my verse. With my eyes closed, on this page my pen bleeds. With the words of unity and peace. You see an image of you and me. And I paint you with the colors of my dreams. So we run together with this beautiful feet. And spread it to the world like a shower of spring.
This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM. 
your Valley Free Radio station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.